This is episode 158 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Science Communication in Industry with Dr. Nicole Quinn. Hey everybody, this is Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. A quick note, you guys, about our upcoming schedule. This is our last episode before the holidays, and we will be taking a short break. But don't you worry, because we'll be back on Tuesday, January 14th, with a brand new episode. So make sure to check back in then. Today, we have Dr. Nicole Quinn, the Associate Director of Scientific Communications at Stem Cell Technologies, on the podcast. Nicole is essentially the de facto producer of this podcast. And she's here in the studio with me, our first ever in-studio interview, to talk about her career transition from academia into science communication, how she found herself doing science communication from within the biotech industry, and what she thinks podcasts can do for the scientific community. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming right up. But first, just as a heads up, stem cell tech is hiring. Stem cell technologies is, of course, a world leader in developing services and tools for scientists working in stem cell biology, cell biology, regenerative medicine, immunology, cancer, and disease research, all sorts of things. United by a foundation of scientific integrity and driven by a mission to advance science globally, stem cell tech is a team of scientists helping scientists. They're looking for creative, driven people to join their international team. You can explore more than 80 different offerings in areas like R&D, sales, business operations, quality, and science communication, all at jobs.stemcell.com. All right, Arun, I'm going to set it off for the roundup here with a story that's not strictly speaking about stem cells, but I mean, I might wave my hands a little bit and make that argument. But the reason I'm talking about this is because we've been you know, covering Zika. Since it was a big outbreak years ago, we talked about it because it was news and, you know, we followed it, even though as the attention has waned a bit. Uh, just to go back a bit, uh, in 2016 it was that the WHO declared Zika a international public health emergency. Uh, and although, you know, it's, it's a mosquito-borne virus, uh, mosquitoes are the main vector there, it can also be transmitted sexually and through, you know, blood products, bodily fluids. Um, and although Zika virus in adults, uh, it's effectively asymptomatic and benign. Clinically, we all know that during pregnancy, it's associated with the high risk of all kinds of defects, specifically the microcephaly and other neural and developmental abnormalities, uh, which are collectively termed congenital Zika syndrome. Okay, now this has declined substantially since 2016. Everyone was freaking out and then it kind of went away. Uh, we had a story just recently how there was a kind of cryptic re-outbreak uh, about, you know, a couple months ago, but essentially it's gone away. Um, but there's high risk for sporadic outbreaks in the future because, you know, mosquitoes aren't going away. Uh, in fact, the, there's an expansion of the territories where mosquitoes are likely to be happy, you know, with the global warming thing. And hmm. humans continue to travel to all these uh, endemic areas, right? So, what are we going to do about this? Well, uh, Cone Rompe, who's at the California National Primate Research Center, along with Barney Graham at the NIH, they got together to try and figure out how they could 
neutralize the Zika and the transmission of this congenital Zika syndrome um, to children. Now, what they use rhesus macaques, obviously, the, the issue with humans is that the kind of outbreak went away, right? So it's not, you know, it's, they're not readily available human subjects, but rhesus is a great model for Zika infection. They recapitulate many of the features of infection, including the development of placental and fetal neurologic abnormalities. And in fact, there've been a lot of preclinical studies in adult non-pregnant macaques that have shown the efficacy of a lot of different uh, Zika vaccines. You know, when this hit, the, you know, Zika hit, everyone went after a vaccine and there was a lot of studies, many vaccines that have been developed, including there's this one Zika virus DNA vaccine, VRC5283. And that's what the authors focus on using this. But what they're doing here is that rather than, you know, this worked in healthy adults. It's a, in a phase one clinical trial, this DNA-based Zika virus vaccine was working and it's currently being evaluated in a lot of um, multi-site phase two clinical trials, but the, the, it's logistically really tough to look at the efficacy of this vaccine for, um, you know, mitigating the effects of the congenital Zika syndrome, right? You can't enroll a bunch of pregnant patients. It's Zika virus is kind of waning. It's difficult to carry on the studies through pregnancy. There's a lot of ethical issues there, of course. So it's been difficult to determine the efficacy against congenital Zika virus in randomized clinical trials. Step in the rhesus macaque, right? So Ron Pangram, what they did is they used the rhesus macaque to look at the, you know, longitudinally, the uh, efficacy of the Zika virus vaccine and recognizing that in the real world, people encounter the pathogen that they're, vaccine against, that they're vaccinated against decades after sometimes, years or decades after they're vaccinated, and they're, they're, they're uh, exposed to these viruses repeatedly. So what uh, Ron Payne Graham did is they immunized the macaques, they exposed them repeatedly to Zika virus during early and mid-gestation, and showed that there was a significant reduction in peak magnitude and duration of maternal viremia, early fetal loss, fetal infection, and placental and fetal brain pathology, right? So this is a science translational medicine study that effectively showed that the, uh, the vaccine could be effective not only in minimizing the viremia, uh, which has been shown, but also in mitigating the uh, neurological uh, pathology that has been termed a congenital Zika syndrome. Arun, what do you think about this? Yeah, kind of like you were talking about, we haven't been hearing as much about Zika over the last year or so. I mean, it's, it's definitely there, but I think the the um, the hype is kind of dying down a little bit. I mean, so certainly it's still a severe disease. It causes severe neurocognitive disorders, and you know, it's something that we definitely need, should, need to be looking at. So this work kind of showed that you can take an approach to Zika vaccination that's, you know, you can basically introduce, you know, uh, the vaccine way before pregnancy, right? Mm -hmm. So it kind of makes me wonder, is this, is this something that we should be thinking about kind of like incorporating with our usual mm -hmm. vaccination titers like that kids get or, you know, people get at a young age? Is this something else that we should be throwing in there? Yes. What do you think? I mean, I, I mean yes, that's the question. I mean, and I don't know what the answer is. But uh, I think, I mean, kind of along the same lines, this is a testament to how robust, at least in this case, the kind of medical machine is um, in that this virus was became widely, uh, you know, 
understood and recognized just three, four years ago. And already we have a whole fleet of vaccines. Now we're pushing them into, you know, phase two. Um, and it raises a question, is it truly altruistic motivation that, you know, it's just a matter of helping people? Or do some people see this as the next big vaccine? Because, yeah, you could argue that we're going to need everybody to prophylactically take this. You know, mosquitoes, like we said, we're not, they're not going away. I will say, though, if you drill down into this study and look at the data, this isn't like, you know, polio. There's vaccines out there which are, are pretty solid. You know, you can say, of yeah. course, there's the, you know, yeah. the herd effect and all that. But um, it's not a, a silver bullet. But a lot of vaccines are very well developed and they provide a really robust uh, response. And in this, if you look at the data, there's still some of the, fe the, fetus, the fetuses uh, from these monkeys that were vaccinated that had some of the brain pathology. So I don't think this vaccine mm -hmm. is a silver bullet, although it seems to be something that, as you say, if we could apply it on a really broad scale, it might be able to, you know, totally mitigate. But that said, you catch polio from other people, right? Mm -hmm. We're catching Zika from mosquitoes. So yep. that kind of idea of the herd effect, I don't know that it really applies. The vector is multiplying. What do you think about the idea of just wiping out the mosquito? I mean, this has kind of been a thing, you know, and, you know, everybody's thought about this, right? Mosquitoes harbor so many different diseases, right? I mean, of course, you talk about like wiping out a huge portion of the food chain or the, the ecological system, right? But like, what if we just go to the source, you know? Yeah, man, I, uh, I'm all for it. I know there's some unknown unknowns there, but come on, it's millions of people, millions that are killed by mosquitoes, not killed by them, but die as a result of mosquito-borne illness. So I think the upside would certainly uh, displace the, uh, the risk there. But like you're talking about, I think um, not only with the case of Zika, like having a you know a vaccine just over the course of a few years, I think, like you said, it kind of speaks to the the power of medical innovation and, you know, when there's, there's an impetus for something like this to develop a vaccine for Zika or even like Ebola, for example, you know, we can get it done. So it's cool to see shifting gears a little bit. Cystic fibrosis, you know, it's another disease that's pretty devastating. And over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of really exciting work in, you know, alleviating some of the symptoms with cystic fibrosis, even not even using like organoid technologies, for example. Like if I recall correctly, I think Hans Cleavers had some kind of paper not too long ago where they basically made organoids from people with cystic fibrosis and they're actually able to have kind of develop like a patient specific platform for identifying different drugs that would be effective in treating the downstream symptoms of cystic fibrosis. So a lot of work that's happening these days when it comes to the intersection of stem cell biology and cystic fibrosis. And this is a, another paper that's kind of building on that. This is coming from the lab of Matt Porteous over at Stanford. First author is Sriram Vedyanathan. It's a cell stem cell paper. A uh, little bit of background, of course, Matt Porteous is known for all of his work in genome editing. He's kind of been one of the pioneers in the field. He's, you know, worked on zinc fingers back in the day, shifting to Talon, and more recently CRISPR. His lab is really focused on translational applications for genome editing for correcting different, uh, you know, diseases associated with like the blood. And now they're actually looking at cystic fibrosis. 
So the title of the paper is High Efficiency Selection-Free Gene Repair in Airway Stem Cells from Cystic Fibrosis Patients Rescues the CFTR Function in Differentiated Epithelia. It's a pretty simple paper. It's only got three figures, um, but really what it's doing is laying the foundation for an inevitable clinical trial that's probably going to be coming or might be in the works over at Stanford. You're probably going to hear about it within the next couple of years. So what they did here was basically an ex vivo correction-based approach. They isolated and expanded cystic fibrosis airway stem cells in, in long-term culture. And then they introduced a, uh, a Cas9 RNP, ribonuclear protein, in combination with an AAV vector to correct a delta F508 mutation that's thought to be causing cystic fibrosis. And they did this in 10 different patient lines. So it's cool to see that be reproduced across different stem cell samples. So they isolated the, the, the stem cells, the airway stem cells. They corrected them for this mutation. They verified that the CFTR function was restored through different biochemical means. They expanded the corrected stem cells. And then, like I said, this is setting up for an inevitable like patient treatment, right? So they embedded the corrected stem cells in a scaffold, were able to see that they actually differentiated. And then that's kind of where the paper comes cuts off. Like, you know where this is going. I was kind of surprised that there wasn't any sort of like, I don't know, I don't even know if this is possible for some sort of like mouse model or something um, to to serve as like the last figure of this paper. But they kind of cut things off showing that, okay, they can correct these things, they can embed this into a scaffold. And the thought is, I'm guessing in the future, they're gonna have like some sort of autologous engraftment of these corrected stem cells into the patients with cystic fibrosis. So it's cool to see what's uh, what's gonna come around the corner. And you know, I'm excited to see what happens next coming from, uh, from Stanford and from Matt Porteous's lab. Yeah, that's the question. What happens next? Uh, I, I, I appreciate what you're saying. Uh, this is a this is laying the foundation for an inevitable patient trial. But what what really struck me here is that it's a real a, a kind of an it's not a totally new approach. It's kind of it's applying I think a known and effective approach that that's pioneered in the blood, where you take it out and then you augment it and put it back in. That's kind of new. I'm to me in the lung. Uh, and it raises the question, then how do you get these cells back in? And I guess that's the, that's, that's the unknown here. I think that, yeah. that previous work has kind of focused on, you know, CF is a great, it's, it's a uh, great illustration of the power of gene therapy and the, the unmet need, right? It's these poor patients who have this, the, you know, degenerative condition, it shortens their lifespan. They, it's miserable. But the idea I thought had always been delivery in situ. That was kind of the gene therapy approach. And then delivery became mm. the issue. You couldn't deliver it. So I'm a little bit surprised that no one has taken an angle where it's like, can we use CRISPR to deliver this uh, gene correction in situ? Because that would clearly be more, more robust in the patient population, although obviously introduces a potential risk of off target at a point where you can't take those cells out of the patient. So I, I see it. I see why they're going out of the body with this airway stem cells and expanding them. I don't see how, I think it's going to be a huge challenge to get those cells back in and working, but I'm, I'm not like a pulmonologist, so I may be just naive to how integrative and, and functional these ex vivo cultured 
airway stem cells can be. You have any ideas? Anyone in transplanted them back in and shown that they can form alveoli? Yeah, I'm not sure myself, and I'm not a pulmonologist either, but kind of back on the, the CRISPR idea, right? Like, if you just look at the paper, it says they were only able to kind of correct only like 30% of the mm. Delta F508 alleles. And, you know, they're able to show that that's maybe that's good enough. So, like, maybe you don't need like a perfect CRISPR for your downstream applications. I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I guess the question is the function, right? Is that 30% enough to restore function when you put it back in the body? And I'll tell you why I want to I know that, because I just read this other story for the Roundup Arun that is about the lungs. Huh, look mm -hmm. at that. And this actually kind of drives to that point of how, how you know, the cells are one thing, but the, the tissue is another, and the tissue is governed by the connectome, right? The, the signaling between cells. In fact, you know, cell-cell signaling, it's critical to life, of course, but it's about the regulation of, of the niche, the cell niche in multicellular organisms and the emergence of tissue properties, right? The meta effect, you have to have the alveoli and all the other associated cell types there, even within the alveoli, multiple cell types, I believe. Um, so the question is, how do those cells interact? How do they communicate uh, and recently, everybody's been throwing single cell seek at systems to try and capture that, that, that multicellular, thousands of cell populations to get a snapshot of their transcriptome to try and, you know, elucidate what they might be saying to each other. Uh, and this has been done for a lot of organs, you know, retina, hypothalamus, intestine, the blood, blah, 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 blah. I do some single cell seek myself. I'm sure you do too, Arun. Yep, yep, everybody's doing it. Indeed, there's an international plan to consolidate single cell seek data for every tissue in the human body. We're going crazy about the single cell seek right now. But the problem is, in some cases, that there's not much analysis across species to identify patterns of signaling that are fundamental to tissue development, function, homeostasis. Um, and the lung here is a good example because the lung, the, the structure of the lung, you know, the functional units of the lung and, and the way they work in mammals is very highly conserved. So this is a good candidate um, relative to other cell populations, perhaps, you know, relative to the brain, maybe. Uh, this is a good candidate. The lungs are the lungs in, in most mammals. So... Uh, to try and figure out what the cell-cell communication and, and paracrine uh, connectome between the cells and the lung are, are. Uh, Laura Nicholson at Yale, they did a lot of single-cell seek. The, the idea was that there's stereotyped patterns of cell-cell communication that are also conserved as well as a superstructure between these species. So they generated and analyzed single-cell seq data from lung tissues across four mammalian species, mouse, rat, pig, and human. And what they found is that there's stereotyped functional roles for each cell type in the distal lung um, with alveolar type 1 cells uh, having a major role in the regulation of tissue homeostasis. Um, and in fact, you know, all in, uh, this is a, a science advances story. So it's a bit descriptive in terms of just, you know, a big data set, tens of thousands of, of these single cell transcriptomes consolidated and analyzed for a kind of a descriptive data driven systems level portrait of the alveolus. 
uh, and it showed that there's extensive mesenchymal epithelial interactions. There's this macrophage matrix engagement. Um, and there's the, the underpinnings of, of the alveolar type 1 cell influence on microvasculature as well. So there's all these, these, these things going on. Some cells are interacting with other cells and it's affecting their transcriptome. Ultimately, it gives a lot of food for thought, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, grist for the mill, so to speak, for future study. Uh, and you might argue in the case of kind of circling back to your story, that'll inform regenerative efforts, you know, having a an idea of how these cells work within the whole and maybe getting an idea of how important each one is to the function of the unit might, might give some insight in how you can get those ASCs back into the lung, those gene-corrected CF ASCs back into the lung. I mean, I'm not saying that's what the point of this story was, but more understanding and more comparative evolutionary kind of understanding of the lung, I think, can help us to, un to figure out what the fundamental mechanisms are there. Single cell seek. Everybody's doing it. You know, it's accessible. It's getting cheaper. You know, I think this this paper was cool because it was looking at the connectome and you want to see how different cell types and different organs interact with each other. Right. And that's that was kind of the application for for this paper to the lung. In fact, the next thing is to do something similar in a different organ. And they even talked about it. You know, these methods may be applicable to mm -hmm. other organs, providing a roadmap, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So you want to make a roadmap. You want to make a connectome for the other organs as well. The the thing, and you actually touched on on one application was the brain, right? So the brain is the first thing that comes to mind in terms of looking at a connectome for different cell types. And it, there's an evolutionary aspect to it too, right? You know, maybe this connectome is the part of the reason why you know we have higher cognitive functions in human brains versus you know lower you know primates versus like non non-primate mammals. So, you know, the connectome in the brain is something we could look at. If you think about the heart, you know, I'm a heart guy, if you haven't heard, if you think about the heart, you know, if you look at the evolution of the heart, it's going from like two-chambered organ, three-chambered organ to a four-chambered organ here in, you know, mammals. And of course, the interaction between the different cell types of the heart is inevitably going to be different when it comes to, uh, you know, these different animals, right? So that's something we could also be looking at, you know, there's a million different organs we can definitely look at when it comes to the connectome. And like you talked about the single cell atlas, that's, that's inevitable. It's coming. There's an effort to, to look at all the different cell types and all different organs. So single cell is not going away. It's only going to get cheaper and more accessible. Yeah, it's not going away. And in fact, now there's these try methods where you get the epigenome, you do ataxic, and you can also get the transcriptome all in one shot. So yeah, single cell is expanding. But I, and I think also, as you're, you're talking about looking evolutionary comparatively, but also looking at comparative between healthy and diseased states. So there's so many things you could look at. And, and I fear that we're really going to be buried under a heap of data that we really don't know what to make sense of, which is a lot of people talk about the risk of our increasingly bioinformatics-focused world. But the real other thing that I think is subtle, and most people wouldn't understand at first read, 
um, or until they've done some, some single cell seek on their own, is that there is a good degree of variability. You know, it, you can really only compare directly cells that were prepared with the same kit on the same day. Mm -hmm. These are mm -hmm. all, there's technical issues here that need to be considered. And, you know, when we read these stories from a bird's eye view, it's easy for us to say, oh, they compared 10,000 cells and blah, 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 and, and these are their conclusions. But the reality is that there's a lot more murk there, right? And, and when we start talking about an atlas, when we start talking about an international effort to consolidate, consolidate all these data, I think one thing we have to take into account is that, you know, it's all prepared differently on different days with different kits. And there's subtle, there's some very fundamental and important insights that we can gain that'll be solid. But there is a little bit of subtle differences there that may muddy the waters in some cases. So we have to be careful in how much we, we invest in our interpretation of this data. No, I agree with you totally. And it's actually something I've encountered recently in one of my uh, revisions for a paper I've been submitting. It comes to the, you know, it comes down to this batch effect, right? Mm -hmm. If especially if you're looking at something like stem cell differentiation from like IPS to whatever, there's inherent variability, like you said, from differentiation to differentiation. And if you're doing single cell on, you know, multiple differentiations, you might get, you know, slightly different results. Of course, I think maybe the approach of the Atlas is you have so many people mm. generating so many data sets that maybe things will, will average out. We'll see. But speaking of lots and lots of, you know, transcriptomic and omics level data, that kind of brings us to the last paper that we'll be talking about in the roundup. And it's another cell stem cell paper coming out of the group of Doug Melton, who's of course one of the big names when it comes to all things stem cell biology. He's one of the pioneers over at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute, and he is focused forever, forever focused on diabetes and, you know, pancreatic differentiation. That's kind of been his lab's focus for forever. So the first author is Juan Alvarez Dominguez and Alex Meissner, who's another person over at the uh, the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. He's also on this paper. So this is, of course, you know, you're talking about Doug Melton, so you're going to talk about islet differentiation, pancreatic beta cell differentiation. And they took this a little step further. They basically, I, I like to think this was a two-part paper. The first part of the paper was doing a whole bunch of epigenomic level analysis of differentiating beta cells from iPSCs. So they did, let's see, so they did ATAC-seq, they did methyl sequencing, they did, you know, bisulfide sequencing, they looked at acetylation marks, they also did some transcriptomic analysis. So like we were just talking about, big data and a lot of it. So that's the first part of the paper. They were basically conducting a really comprehensive epigenomic level analysis of going from pluripotent stem cell to definitive endoderm, pancreatic progenitors, endocrine progenitors, endocrine cells, you know, ultimately the beta cells and the comparing everything, comparing all this epigenomic analysis, of course, to a control, which is their primary beta cells. And what did they find? So they actually found that there are, of course, there are dynamic changes that happen to the epigenome over the course of differentiation. And these can kind of help us in help inform us uh, about the different paths that cells take over the course of beta cell differentiation. The next part of the paper was kind of unique, and it was building on a couple of findings that they actually uh, found from their, you know, epigenomic level analysis. They're actually showing that there are some circadian rhythm genes, like genes involved in the circadian clock, that are important for beta cell differentiation. And they were able to 
kind of take this a step further, and they decided to actually train their beta cells, their differentiated beta cells, according to a like a circadian cycle. So kind of similar to what we experience every day, right? We wake up, we eat some food, do some work, go to sleep, kind of repeat that cycle again and again, right? So this feeding fasting cycle. And that's actually what they pretty much did for their differentiated beta cells. And they're actually able to show that once you train these beta cells according to a fed and fasted cycle kind of on a daily basis, they're able to mature. They're actually able to secrete more insulin. So it kind of got me to thinking like cell culture, what we're doing is pretty arbitrary, right? Like it's super artificial. What if we're missing this whole circadian element? And I, and you know, obviously it's not just Doug Melton's lab that's been doing this. Other people have been focusing on the circadian rhythm as well. Maybe that's something that we should introduce into our cell culture on a more routine basis. Of course, it's going to require a lot of maintenance. I get it. I get it. You know, cell culture is tedious enough as it is. Mm. I don't know if you want to come out here and train my cardiomyocytes, Dalon. Maybe you want to feed them three times a day just to keep them happy. You know, I'd be all for it. I'm done with that my man i i have a a lab of my own now and so i don't like to i don't <laughs> like to go in at crazy hours although somehow i still find myself in the middle of the night in the lab some days uh, and i wouldn't have it any other way but you know the, the interesting <laughs> thing here is as you talked about a little bit there is that the unexpected result in the beginning end of this yeah the first part of the paper as you talked about you know that's standard HSCI, throw a few hundred thousand dollars and some big brains <laughs> at the thing and, and get in a, a heap of data and, and really, you know, understand a thing. But the novel element here is the circadian element. And I like I like those kind of kind of angles, right? Because one, the upside is it forces you to, to think of everything and reframe your way of thinking. Downside, as you said, is you kind of have to reframe your thinking of every result you ever had. <laughs> I remember there was a story where it came out that like where the, where the mice were reacting differently to male or women handlers. And oh, yeah. the, the, do you remember that thing? And that yeah. everyone was just like, <laughs> oh, well, then I just have to read. And, you know, when, when you get a, a, a result like that, that not only is relevant in your field, but um you know, can bleed into science generally and practice everywhere. It's it's a typical Melton, uh, you know, Meisner uh, contribution there. They're changing the way we think. Well, you know, it's powerful. It's it's you know a huge data set, and I'm sure people are gonna gonna use it to look at different beta cell applications. But yeah, I, like you said, it, it's a model, right? And again, this is something that I have to convince my reviewers about. They're like, oh, why didn't you approach it this way? Or why did you do this number of differentiations? Or it's a model system. It's not going to be perfect. That's that's the inherent point of a model. You're replicating the real thing and it's not going to be perfect, right? Yeah, well, it's close to perfect when you're at Harvard, or at least it comes off that way when you read the paper. But of course, <laughs> perfect is an illusion. Uh, now getting to our interview. And on that note, in keeping with the theme of her expertise, we're talking about social, we're talking about communications. Are you looking for ways to expand the reach of your research? Want to gain an edge on your next grant application? You should watch Stem Cell Technologies' Christina McBurney, Manager of Scientific Communications and Leanna Bedell, Senior Social Media Specialist, discuss how you can use social media, and especially Twitter, which I love, to advance oh, yeah. your scientific career in an on-demand webinar provided by Stem Cell. Learn more and watch the webinar 
at www.stemcell.com slash social media. All right, folks, we've got a special guest today. We have with us Dr. Nicole Quinn, who is the Associate Director of Scientific Communications at Stem Cell Technologies. Nicole completed her MSc in cancer biology and then spent a year working as a lab technician in a high-throughput DNA sequencing lab before returning to grad school. She completed her PhD studying temperature tolerance in salmonoids, salmons and their relatives, using genomics. After discovering that her love for science lay more in communicating rather than doing research, she left the bench to pursue a career in science communication, and then she took on the task of expanding the existing newsletter service at STEM Select Technologies, which is awesome, by the way, into a comprehensive, globally accessible science communication program, including more than 20 weekly field-specific newsletters, a podcast, several community-focused websites, and almost 40 different social media channels. Nicole is passionate about increasing accessibility to science and exploring new platforms, such as a podcast, for example, to foster connection, collaboration, and knowledge sharing within the scientific community. Nicole, thanks for everything that you do, and welcome to the other side of the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks, Arun. I'm happy to be here. And I, I wanted to say this is the first interview that has taken place live, well, with Daylon in his little closet studio. Uh, so I'm I'm pretty flattered to be the first one here in New York to be uh, interviewed live. Yes, that's right. We've got Nicole Quinn in the house and uh, she's going to share some of that knowledge with us. Nicole, let's start by talking about your arc. It's a bit uh, unique, I would say, your scientific arc. And coming to know you over the last few years, I've seen that you seem really satisfied with that path uh, and where it's led. Tell us about that. Would you say this path is reproducible uh, and perhaps even represents a kind of broader trend? Uh, or do you think this is like a one-off? Wow, that's a lot of questions in one. So yeah, my path, um, well, as, as Arun said, I, I did a master's degree um, when I studied cancer biology. I was looking at transgenic mice and and the impacts of ionizing radiation on these various genes in, in mouse offspring. And then finished that up and I went and worked for uh, um, the Michael Smith Genome Sciences Center for a year. Realized that, um, you know, I was doing really high throughput DNA fingerprinting. Um, but really had nothing to do with the research part of it, just really processing samples and assaying samples all day. And I really missed research and the big picture of science. So I went back to school and I studied uh, salmonids and, and specifically Arctic char. Um, and I did some research around, so Arctic char are really cool salmon, uh, species related to salmon. And they are, um, they're really amenable to aquaculture because they, they can be in fresh water throughout their entire life cycle. So they can be grown in these like closed containment facilities, like closer to, you know, inland. So they're not in these floating net pen um, situations where you don't have to have an ocean nearby and there's not so many environmental implications. Um, and they also like to be really compact and, and swim really closely together. So there's, there's quite an interesting um, field of research around them because they can be farmed, but of course they're an Arctic fish. Uh, and so they need to be in cold water. And then I was looking at temperature tolerance and whether they could be selectively bred for um, uh, using genomics techniques for aquaculture purposes, and also whether they could withstand like climate change um, 
And that was really interesting and I loved it. Um, uh, but I, I kind of realized, like Arun said, halfway through that the interesting parts of science for me were not at the bench. I, I did bench work as a means to an end, but the days where I was at the bench all day were not my favorite days. And I really preferred when I got to get out into the community and, and speak about science and write about science and mentor and teach. And, and so I started to look into science communication as a possible career. And back then, it was uh, kind of a newish idea, I guess. I mean, I don't think a newish idea, but there wasn't a lot as much buzz as there is now around science communication. Wasn't a lot of structured jobs or training. I did do one incredible course at the Banff um, Center for the Arts, which is an amazing facility in Banff, Canada. And they, they have like residency programs for artists, um, like poets and potters and dancers and stuff, but they also do this incredible science communication residency. And so I, I was lucky enough to go there and spend two weeks learning from an, a really awesome faculty. And the great thing that happened there was I met a whole bunch of other scientists uh, who also loved communication and were, were thinking or had already left uh, research. And so I kind of found my tribe. Mm. I felt like I, I, it gave me a lot of hope that this was something I could do because of course, when you're being trained up as a, as a research scientist, everyone around you is also training as a research scientist and your mentors are training you to be a research scientist. And so it's quite an identity crisis to say, uh, you know, after years and years of training, I, I might not actually want to do this. And I also would be lying if I didn't say I felt a little bit guilty that I devoted this much time and I had so many mentors that had devoted time into to training me. Uh, and then I was thinking of leaving. Um but ultimately I did. I, I left and I went and worked for stem cell as the um, scientific communications and publishing team lead. That was about eight years ago and started building this program. Um, it was already sort of started. There were there were 11 newsletters, but, uh, you know, we can talk about the mission of, of the company, which is really just to help scientists do their work more effectively and efficiently. And, and the mandate of the CEO, Dr. Alan Eves, was he basically just told me build a program that helps scientists keep current with what they're doing in the field and what's going on in their fields. And so I did. Um, and that's how this podcast, you know, came under us and, and a bunch of other programs. Um, so is this path reproducible? Um, I don't know if my exact path would be, but I certainly think there's a lot more room. Um, like we have a whole team at stem cell of people who are doing various elements of science communication uh, and, and I think that's happening more and more, um, maybe not so much in industry, um, but a little bit, but more in, in sort of government funded, um, you know, facilities and, and private facilities and stuff like that. So, mm -hmm. so from salmon to science communication, that's yeah. the, the transition, right? So, I mean, it's super obvious that your passion, you're really passionate about this, given that everything you, that you've built up with the newsletters and now the podcast, you know, it's, it's very evident that this is something that you really love. And I think it's fantastic because as you talked about, science communication is something that's really taken off over the last decade or so, especially when you talk about like social media and how everything is super accessible when it comes to getting your science out there. And I'm a big fan of science communication too. And that's part of the reason why I'm actually doing this podcast, right? So you're absolutely right in that, you know, back in the day, there was this idea of like, oh, you're a PhD trained scientist, you have to stay in academia. And these days, I think it's fantastic that there's so many other 
paths out there. Are there still, is there, are there any things that you still miss about the day-to-day life in lab or, you know, is this something that you've kind of uh, moved on from? That's a great question. So when I, um, when I had made the decision that I was going to leave and, and move into industry, I was really worried that I would miss not so much the day-to-day lab work. Um, I don't miss being at the bench at all, um, but that's my own story. And, and I'm not, I don't have a particularly green thumb at the bench. I'm capable, but not, you know, super, it, it was never something that came very naturally to me. I'm not, um, I'm more of a big picture person, I think. So what I did worry that I was going to miss was the mentorship, being a TA, being mentoring other students in the lab, you know, being in lab meetings, especially once I became more of a senior PhD student in the lab where I was really supporting other people in lab, the lab with their work. And then the other thing I was going, I was worried that I would miss the people. So I love the academic setting where you have speakers coming in all the time. You have, um, you know, lunch and learns and, and seminar series and journal clubs, and you're always learning and challenging each other. Um, that I was, I was worried I was going to miss. And then my field, you know, I, I really enjoyed the field I was working in. So I would say out of those three things, I get just as much at, at stem cell, like in, in, in the job I'm in, I'm mentoring, I have a team of, I don't know, 15 people, um, that I'm constantly, you know, and, and then mentoring broadly within the company. Um, the people that I work with are all, I mean, the third of the company has a PhD. Other, most other people are engineers or at least, you know, masters or, you know, some sort of level of expertise and that whole drive to progress science and to, to be connected, you know, along the, the love for discovery, uh, is there. And so I don't miss that learning piece cause I, I feel I'm still getting it. Um, my field leaving genomics and leaving salmon genomics and climate change biology and, you know, that kind of thing. I did go through a bit of a mourning period where I would see my peers publishing and I would see, you know, a couple of years out of, after I came out of the lab, this huge project was published in nature. And I was like, God damn, like Hmm. that's amazing for them. And I know Mm -hmm. the impact that that's going to have on the research program there and, you know, the funding that's going to come in and they got a huge grant. And, and so I, I missed that a bit and I still, I still miss being a bit of it. Like genomics has changed in, in the eight years I've been out. Like the, the technology has come so far, you know, you can sequence anything now for like a dollar. And, and <laughs> I, I don't know that stuff anymore. I, I couldn't have much of a conversation around any of that anymore other than in a very general sense. So I would say that is something that people maybe if they're going to make a change like this, they have to be prepared. But I also would say that who is still, even even if I continued with research, would I be still in that field? Like you, you kind of migrate and change your expertise as you go anyway, right? Hmm. Yeah, for everything you lose, you certainly gain uh, more as long as you keep moving forward. And you've gained a pretty holistic view of how this major industry player stem cell technologies operates. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a large portion of our audience that's come up in academia, uh, they may not have any idea. What, what do you think best embodies the difference in practices in the industrial space 
generally speaking? And what would you say is really unique uh, within industry about stem cell technologies? Oh, there's so much there. So um, stem cell is, well, we're a Canadian company. Um, I think that the, I don't know if that makes any difference at all, actually. It's a Canadian-founded company, and it's, it's globally. <laughs> but just, just for some context, um, the founder, CEO, president, who still is still all of those things, um, Alan Eaves, what, had he had a full, and he, he's been interviewed on this podcast uh, several years ago, but he had a full research career before he really dove into stem cell. He, he, um, you know, he, he had founded the Terry Fox Laboratories. He was very accomplished in his field. I think he has like several hundred publications. And so he was so embedded and passionate and, and you know, productive in, in his field. And I think that really lends itself to the mission of the company because he he loves science and, and he only started the company after he had kind of been at the time he was he was faculty at UBC and they had rules around age and you had to retire by 65. And mm. so he had to leave and he had started stem cell just as a little spinoff, like he was making some cell culture media. I think there are four or five different types Um I, I don't I don't have that maybe exactly right, but it was very small um, as a as a side project when he was uh, when he was a researcher and then when he was forced to retire, he was he had no interest in stopping. He wanted to continue to support research. And so he decided to focus his efforts on stem cell and grew it from there. And so it's very, very genuine roots. And like I said, he's still there every single day. Um, you know, comes in with his paper bag lunch and his office is on the same floor as all of the scientists and and he's very active in the company. And that mission of just like, let's help scientists figure out how to do their research more reproducibly or quicker or more effectively or how, and, and then we have a whole services arm. So how to train up scientists, like we have, we have education programs and a whole bunch of um, technical support. Uh, and then we have all of this content that we put out to try to keep people connected and current with their fields. And so he, he never did it for money. Like he could have retired several times over and uh, he did it because he wanted to support research. And of course the company has to earn enough to keep itself afloat. But if we're putting out good products and good content and, and doing the job right, that kind of happens. Um, so I think that is a, is a key difference in, in stem cell. And that's what kind of keeps us as a, a really unique company that's able to do, be nimble and do a lot more things for the scientific community. Yeah, I think like you mentioned, it's something that's at least from what I'm aware of is pretty rare when it comes to big time companies, you know, having such a strong science communication arm and, you know, as stem cell biologists, like we're definitely grateful because, you know, hopefully the podcast is something that people listen to. And it's, you know, when it comes to the newsletters is something that I definitely rely on quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're definitely very grateful. So part of you know, the program at Stem Cell Tech is the Stem Cell SciComm program. And of course, you're heavily involved with that. So could you talk a little bit about that and, you know, your involvement with it, how it's grown and why it really exists? Yeah. Um, so why it exists is, is simply because if you think about the way scientists are expected to keep current on their field um, and, and the, the resources that people have and the way the sort of the scientific... I don't know, system has grown. So we've got academic publications, um, which are, are, you know, fine, but they're, <laughs> um, that's the way the system has been built. But 
you know, they there's a there's many of them. So I think there's something like like an on average 80 publications per day, seven days a week with that can be tagged with the term stem cells um, that come out. And so how can anyone possibly keep up with that? The other thing is that they're uh, they're sort of only part of the story. Right. So you you get the the summarized, you know, positive data, like we always talk about, is there a, a journal of negative results? No, not really. So you're getting kind of a piece, a nice polished piece of science when you read, when you read that, you're not getting the full picture. And then the, the thing that I always think is astounding is the time lag. So if you think about how long it takes, by the time you've accrued enough data to kind of piece it all together and figure out, okay, this is a publishable piece of science that I can get out there. And then you write it up and you submit it and it goes through editorial review and then peer review. And then it comes back and you do revisions and back and forth, back and forth. And then it finally gets out there. That data, those data can be two years old. And if you think about how fast the rest of the world works, it's crazy to me that as scientists, we're expected to build on each other's findings and, and test each other's findings, but we don't know each other's findings until two years after they've actually come out. Mm -hmm. So it, it's a quite a, a broken system. Of course, it's the system we need to have because that's how people are, you know, it's publish or perish. You you publish, you that's how you you get funding, that's how you get jobs, that's how you get tenure, that's how you get promoted, all of those things. And that's fine, but I think we need to augment that with other systems. Um, and then you think of the other ways. So we go to conferences, we present posters, we get we, we hear seminars. But of course, those are very resource intensive. You have to have the funding to go to those conferences. You have to, you know, be able to take the time out of your life. And, um, you know, if you want to get into like whether those are even, you know, responsible in terms of the environmental impact of everyone mm -hmm. flying to like, you know, a city wherever to to meet. Um, we we have other technologies and other communication platforms available to us um, now <laughs> that I think scientists have been a bit slow to adopt because we have this ingrained system. But things like podcasting and social media and even the email newsletters that we have that kind of summarize the latest research and, and make it just like a, a nice package of here's 10 studies that came out in the last week in your field. So you don't have to go dig through them and spend your time doing that as a researcher. Um, that's really the why behind the program is, is can we, um, you know, given the, the platform we have as, as industry, given the resources we have, the expertise we have, can we figure out a way to help scientists keep current with their fields and connected with each other? So that's where the social media part comes in is, can we help build communities and, and help people, you know, uh, network and, and get, um, career mentorship or whatever it is that people need, um, you know, we can be there because I don't think academic scientists have the time or really the platform to be doing this kind of stuff. But in industry, we do like we have, you know, we have a whole web team, we have a whole graphic design team, we have a video team, we have an audio team, we have um, a whole network of salespeople, a whole network of research and development people like we, we can do that kind of business end of, of the the communication platforms and then enable people like, you know, the two of you to do the science, the interviews and, you know, the other piece. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of, you know, the why. Um, I think there was a second part of your question and I don't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, just about like how quickly it's grown, you know, obviously like stem cells been around for a while. Like, you know, how 
big has this become over the last mm. few years? Yeah. So the last few years have seen a nice jump because, um, well, we acquired this podcast three years ago, actually three years ago now. It was, it was, this is kind of the third birthday of us having it. And we've also built out uh, the Science in the City program. So we now have three cities. We have Seattle, Vancouver, and Boston for, for Science in the City. Um, we have now 21 different newsletters. Um, so those are uh, found at stemcellsciencenews.com or formerly they, well, they're also found at connectsandcreative.com. Um and we're launching a new website for those newsletters in the next few months, um, which is going to be really awesome because it's just kind of a, a almost like a Twitter feed of science. It's not Twitter, obviously, but it's just a website, but it's like a news feed um, of curated science. Um, and you can sort and bookmark and download citations. And that's going to be that I'm pretty excited about that. So it's grown quite a bit. Um, and then we have this whole social media part where every one of the newsletters has a, uh, a social media uh, like a Twitter feed associated with it. And there's like 60,000 um, followers combined uh, for for that. So people are really, I think, finding utility in in these services that we're offering. Because like I said, the, the systems that we're provided with, um, you know, the publications and textbooks, I don't know, like whatever else you're expected to learn <laughs> from, are, are not cutting it uh, in today's sort of communication world. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, clearly the, the primary mandate of stem cell technologies and Dr. Eves is communication, helping scientists, you know, streamlining their workflow, et cetera. But let's be straight. Some of the communications coming from stem cell, like any company, are meant to drive sales, right? Mm -hmm. We got to pay for all this altruism. Um, we advertise stem cell technologies products, uh, products on the show, every episode or services. Uh, but I don't think you really need any help from us. I don't think our ads are driving sales. Putting aside the current or future value of the podcast for like product awareness or promotion, um, do you anticipate a shift in the role of social uh, and like consumer engagement in broadly in, in sales of scientific products? And I anticipate uh, the answer is yes, sir. But are there certain products that fit better into that mold? than others, like I could see like awareness of reagents on social or is it also work for stuff like microscopes or like hardware? Is there a vision that like, I guess with stem cell technology is a reagent company, but how big an impact do you think it's gonna shift and, and displace or augment uh, the current, you know, marketing and advertising uh, apparatus at these companies? You mean I just across the board? It's like how big is gonna social gonna be for marketing? Oh, social media! Oh, huge! Um, so, yeah, like the traditional ways that companies market products were, you know, you show up at a vendor, a, like a, a conference, and you have your booth, um, or you have like print ads in journals, um, you know, stuff like that, where it's it's what we call outbound marketing, where where you just kind of splash your message all over the place and hope somebody sees it. Mm -hmm. And of course, marketing in general has changed. And now we can do targeted marketing based on people's online behavior. So um, social media 
I mean, you guys, if you're, I don't know, Dale, on you're apparently not on social media, but, um, <laughs> but so maybe I do need to teach you this, but when you're, I mean, even if you're browsing the internet, you know, Google follows you around and shows you, if you go to a, a site, like, you, you know, you go look at whatever, a set of headphones somewhere on Amazon, and then you, you go try and read a news article that head, set of headphones follows you around, right? Mm. The internet. And that's how marketing is just, it's done these days. So yeah, social media, you can do, you know, paid ads where we find, you know, we can on our end look and see, okay, who is in interested in biology and, you know, something like LinkedIn, you can go pretty deep because people put their entire CV up on LinkedIn. So you can say, okay, where are they located? What kind of industry are they in? And you can serve them relevant content. And I don't think there's any, anything, I think that's actually fantastic because, you can serve them stuff that they want. And mm. that's also driven a, a shift in marketing where you have to provide somebody with something useful or they don't want to pay attention to you. So you can't just splash an ad in front of them. You have to put that in context somehow. So you're teaching them something, making something like we do a whole lot of webinars. Um, we provide things like wall charts, which are just, you know, informational posters for the lab that provide basic information for people. Um, we do things like this podcast. Um, so it's no secret that that's the way marketing has moved is, is this content marketing, which is now called inbound marketing, where you're bringing people to you rather than splashing mm -hmm. marketing out there. And, um, so I think social media is huge in that sense. But I think the other thing that, so that's paid social media, but the other thing that's amazing about it is this organic side of social where you're having conversations and creating communities where people can connect. So in science specifically, um, you know, science is kind of a lonely endeavor. Like you, 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 you're doing your own project. You're really as as you get deeper and deeper, the only person who really understands what you're doing. Um, and often maybe even the only person in your lab who really is using a specific, I don't know, system or, or model or assay. And so you can connect on social media with other people who are interested in what you're doing. You can connect with other people who are interested in like, you know, there's hashtags like um, women in STEM, women in science, mm. um, diversity in science. There's SciComm hashtags where you can find other people. So I talked about that, that course I went to in Banff where I was like, wow, there are actually other scientists who just want to communicate science and don't want to do the research. That was kind of before social media had become... I'm aging myself, but before it had become huge. And, and now it's, I don't have to go and spend two weeks, you know, hanging out with people. That was amazing, an amazing experience, but I can go on Twitter and find those exact people mm. and have more camaraderie and more sort of mentorship and find specific events maybe to attend where, you know, you can network those people. So I'm moving away from, from marketing here, but it, it's all, um, it's all part of the same system because as soon as a company needs to also get their products and let's face it, that's what companies need to do is get their products in front of people. But those products, you know, it sounds like such a dirty word when you say products and commercialization and selling. And I would really like to change that because these things are out there to help. They're out there like they wouldn't sell if they weren't useful. They weren't, wouldn't, you know, they're part of the scientific process. You need tools and reagents and, you know, technologies at the bench or everybody's going to have to build them themselves before they can even start to ask research questions. So we can get them out there and say, hey, you want to use organoids as a model system in your lab? You have no idea where to start. 
we have everything you need to start with, mm. to, to start that out. You know, we have the technical resources, we have the technical support, we have education programs, we have the reagents and the kits and, you know, let's get that in front of the right people and let's start building communities around that and support around that. So I, I, did that answer your question? Yes, yes, <laughs> okay. very comprehensively. Nice. Uh, Arun, next. Yeah, no, you're totally right, Nicole. I think, you know, I'm a big fan of social media and I think it's really taken like science communication, both on the, the corporate side and also on the professional side to the next level. It seems like, you know, everybody's got a Twitter account, well, except for Daylon. And <laughs> I actually you know, am pretty sad on Twitter too. I do a lot of lurking and like support, but I don't, my own personal Twitter presence is pretty sad, but. Arun, you're doing enough Twitter for the both of us. Keep it <laughs> yeah. up, my friend. I mean, that's, you know, I don't know, you know, maybe I'm doing a little too much Twitter no, to talk about that offline. The great thing about <laughs> Twitter is that you don't have to necessarily participate. Like I am on there quite a bit doing, I guess what's called like listening, lurking, I don't know, um, where I see what's happening, but I'm not putting a lot out there um, personally. And that's just a time thing really. But that's the awesome thing is I'm still seeing how the utility in it, right? Anyway, yeah, no, sorry, I interrupted your question. No, 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 you're, you're totally right. I mean, you don't necessarily have to participate. You can just kind of scroll along, click on hashtags and do whatever you want. It's, I'm, I think that's perfectly fine. But do you think like overall, though, the the net effect of social media when it comes to like the scientific community has been has been positive? I know like over the last few years, there's been a lot of work, a lot of, you know, interest in the negative side of social media as well, especially on like the political side of things. But mm -hmm. at least on the science side of things, do you think it's been a net positive? Uh, today, I say yes. So I don't know if I would say that. Ever. Like, it just depends on, you know, perspective. And I think um, yeah, I think it has because I think the the thing the thing I mentioned before, like basically just the community connection, camaraderie, finding your people, finding, you know, um, mentorship, whatever you you can say, and then sharing science, like that two year publication lag thing, um, can be somewhat augmented where people are sharing findings. Like I know people who publish like like post their their data in real time, like almost these online lab books hmm. that they, they put out, hmm. um, which is a pretty cool concept. And then, um, also just like sharing the, like, Hey, cool nature paper, you know, bouncing that around the community is, is great. But I think the other thing that, you know, scientists have, you know, we're, we're perceived as being in ivory towers and inaccessible. And we, you know, if we get into the sort of I don't know if it's political or what, but, you know, this sort of death of expertise um, thing that's happening where where the Internet has enabled people to find any information they want, just, you know, whether it's true or not. And scientists have never been as accessible as they are now to actually find the truth, actually find like, OK, let's find an expert. Let's get this person to comment on, you know, what what the data are really like, like interpret the the science that's really going on. And Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever provides a platform for that where scientists can actually engage with um, the community at large or even among the scientific community in ways that we didn't have access to before and, and sort of pulls scientists out of those ivory towers a little bit. So um, I think it's newish. I mean, scientists have been a little slower to adopt social media into the way we interact as a community, but I think it's I've seen, I have numbers to show like 
the adoption of of social media for our um, for our newsletter program, for example, and in the last three or four years, it's hockey sticked. Like we've seen it just take mm-hmm. off. So I think it's it's happening, and I think it's overall a really good thing. Yeah, you guys love to haze me. Oh, it's fine. About <laughs> it's, my lack of you're, social. You're still doing your piece for Psycom, right? I'm you're doing still doing my little bit, but not <laughs> it's not very social. I mean, look, I get it. I can I can barely navigate people in real life. So <laughs> it's no surprise that I don't exist in the social universe. But I mean, there is I, I, this isn't even an excuse. I don't know. I don't know that this is why I'm not on social. I'm just lazy, but it's true what Arun said is I, I when I hear Twitter, I automatic I mean, I immediately cut to like thinking about like trolling or mm-hmm. cancel culture or whatever that you hear about in the media. And I heard recently that Disney was considering buying Twitter, but then, you know, Disney being Disney, they, they looked at it and they were like, there's just too much quote unquote nastiness. Mm. And so they decided to not buy it. And I would argue that if you talk to like real science debates and scientists are like, can be really petty and mean and nasty, you know, when they're mm-hmm. talking, especially in a scientific debate, especially when they, you know, believe something to be absolute truth and someone else believes the opposite, right? So these debates can get really nasty, but you don't see that. Like you said, in, in Twitter, it's like really net positive, I would say. And I'm not saying that this would my, be my argument, but one might argue that the science Twitter sphere is kind of inauthentic um, and that a real authentic Twitter sphere would have scientists being nasty with each other like they're in real life. Do you think that that's like it'll quote unquote mature to that phase where science like is it still a moving target or a work in progress? Like is science on Twitter still evolving and ultimately we may arrive at this these nasty debates you think on Twitter is it just not the forum for it? That is, I I don't know the answer to that. So I agree that when you're a scientist, you're, I mean, I remember sitting in seminars and just being like, these guys are going at it. Like, and, and, um, and that's the culture of science. And that's like, you know, we push each other and, and, you know, push each other to like, because science is not always black and white, of course, like there's, there's nuance and there's different ways to interpret data. And, and so we're pushing and that's how you learn. And that's fine and accepted in the scientific community as the way people interact. And then of course, as scientists, we go out into like public and realize, no, you can't be that confrontational. And that's why maybe we're <laughs> considered like, Or can you? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, maybe that's why Dalon's comment about like <laughs> interacting. But um, yeah, so I don't know. I, maybe, I hope not, because I worry that exactly that where the general public um, or people who are just in science enthusiasts and are trying to maybe learn a little and get a little glimpse into the scientific, you know, culture and what's going on in fields that might be of personal interest to them. Um, if they're doing that through social media, they may not understand that that's mm. how science is done and that's the mm. culture. And we're okay with it because we know that you've got to kind of have a thick skin and you've got to be able to to hold your own as a scientist Um and it's not nasty in the same way that you see this sort of anonymous trolling that's going on in, in other parts of, of social media. So I don't know. I haven't seen it. Maybe you're right that it's not it's, it's a different type of communication. It's not the full spectrum of what happens mm-hmm. in science. It's going to show up on social. But I'm, I'm interested to see how that pans out for sure. 
So, Nicole, we've talked about different avenues for social media. You know, Twitter is perhaps the most popular one when it comes to the scientific community. But we're, of course, here at the Stem Cell Podcast, and it seems like kind of podcasting is the next big wave for social media. You know, it seems like everybody's hopping aboard the bandwagon. Everybody's coming out with their new cool podcast, you know, every week or something like that. Mm -hmm. So you're a science communicator, and you can kind of evaluate these different types of social media probably better than we can. So what do you see in podcasting that makes this such a powerful tool for disseminating science? Yeah. So I agree. You see podcasts like, you know, every celebrity is like, oh, now I have a podcast, you know, go follow whatever. And, and I think that's great. And I think the reason people are doing that is because they realize that a podcast is a platform for this long form conversation that is not scripted and it's not dictated by any, you know, network or like, you know, you see something on TV and there's obviously an agenda and certain editing that takes place and it's short sound bites and whatever. And you don't have to have that with a podcast. It's not even like, there's no other platform like it other than maybe like YouTube, um, where you can just talk and you can just listen and, and kind of be a fly on the wall to a really cool conversation that you wouldn't have been able to have in person yourself. So in terms of science, um, you know, the only way you would get access to some of these like, you know, astounding, you know, incredibly successful scientists that you guys interview is if you were lucky enough to be at a conference and maybe get to like, you know, hear them do a plenary session, or if, you know, maybe go to some sort of mentoring lunch with them, but you're not going to get that back and forth, you know, in-depth conversation where you're learning about like the dead ends of their research, the lab blunders they've had, the, you know, their big sky ideas, they're like, you know, what, what makes them tick. Um, and that's how as scientists, we need to learn from each other and get mentorship and, and, and understand what's happening in our community. So I think it's an, an amazing uh, platform for scientists to connect and, and, and learn. Yeah, Nicole, you should know because of all the people who have been a part of the podcast who are currently involved, you're the longest tenured. Could you walk us through how the Stem Cell Podcast came about, its history, how Stem Cell Tech came to own and manage it? And Arun and I are, of course, well acquainted with the wonderful folks in charge of putting together this show and making us sound moderately intelligent along the way. But could you share with our listeners who else works behind the scenes on the podcast, what they do? Yeah, absolutely. So... Yeah, the podcast was started. I mean, you can go back into the archives and hear the the sort of evolution of it. It, it was started independently, two scientists who were kind of doing this um, as a passion project off the sides of their desks. They just wanted to talk to scientists. And um, we, uh, you know, I was at that time starting out the kind of growth of the science communication program at Stem Cell. And I was thinking about podcasting. It was kind of on my radar, but I wasn't sure how to do it. And then suddenly I heard, oh, some someone else started the stem cell podcast, you know, kind of felt scooped, but at the same time, whatever started listening to it. And then we sponsored it as a company and kind of put some ad spots out and had some banner ads on their website. And, and that was our involvement. And then as they kind of got deeper into it and, and had to kind of, they sort of started to realize that they had to do a lot of, you know, the back end work, like maintaining a website, promoting the podcast, sound production, um, chasing down guests, chasing down funding, um, you know, all of that stuff was just more than they could handle. All they really wanted to do is talk to scientists. So they approached us 
uh, three years ago and, and asked if we wanted to acquire it. And of course, we were already sponsoring it. So we took it over and um, really, you know, in, in full transparency, we wanted to be very careful because we know that scientists might not trust um, a podcast or, or any sort of resource, informational resource that's coming from a biotech company. And so uh, I was really, um, I, I just really made sure that we maintained the integrity of the podcast. And that's one of the reasons why we don't have internal people, like we have great scientists at Stem Cell, but we don't have them host the podcast. We wanna make sure that people like you and Arun or, or um, who are still really active in the research community and are at arm's length from stem cell technologies are the ones speaking to the guests. And um, so we we just slowly kind of, um, you know, we, we did a new website. We kind of uh, amped up the social media a bit, but really haven't changed it much since then. And um, yeah, who's behind the scenes? So I... I honestly, like, I, I don't do a whole lot. All I do is really listen to it and enjoy it at this point. Um, we have Christina McBurney and Ellie, um, Ellie-Ann, who do all the booking. And so they are the ones who are kind of watching for, you know, papers that are coming out, scientists that are kind of um, out there doing interesting things and contacting them and seeing if they want to be on the podcast. Um, they're the ones that kind of, uh, you know, they hand you guys a, a, a bio and, you know, a, a, an accumulation of papers or whatever to try and help you guys get up to speed. And then we have our production team. So we have Jack uh, Shaw and we have Adrian who do all of the post-production. So they will take the audio files that you guys do. And we don't edit it much. We just take out any bloopers or, you know, any background noise or anything like that. Because, again, we want to make sure the integrity is there. Um, and, and yeah, that's, that's a about it <laughs> you guys one of these days we're gonna roll that blooper reel and you, you're gonna be you're gonna be howling but seriously i have to say uh for I, i'm sure rune will attest to this as well but you know we just have to show up you know we 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 love the science and we're real fanboys you know it's like getting to meet your your celebrity crush every other week so you know we just have to come to the table with questions that we've already had in mind and uh the team makes it so easy. So if you guys like the show, you really ought to leave a comment, not for Arun and I, but for the production team, because they're the ones killing it out there. Arun, come on, testify. Yeah. No, you guys make it so easy for us. And, you know, from a personal level, right? Like I'm I'm a pretty young scientist. I'm a postdoc. I'm just trying to get my foot in the door, right? So to have the opportunity for someone at my level to talk to these really incredible people in the field, these people who I look up to and who I've looked up to for like the last 10 years. It's, it's a godsend. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And I'm super, super appreciative of that. So thank you. That's awesome. See that, that I think that whole like synergistic, um, you know, you guys get to do what you want to do. You don't have to deal with the business end. We do the business end. That's what we want to do. Um, you know, that's great. I, I don't want to go talk to those guests. Um, I would be completely like stumped and, uh, and, and would not be effective on that, that side of the, of things. But I also, but I want to provide this platform and this, this accessibility. So it's kind of, you know, a really, 
I don't know. I, I really like that science is evolving in this way where we can all kind of, you know, find our place where we can contribute to the progression of knowledge, whether that be at the bench or, you know, doing doing something like you guys are doing or doing something in the background, like what, what I do and my team does. So, yeah. So we're, you know, we're here at the podcast. It's It's been around for a while, right? Like we've already done a 150 episodes. I've only been involved in like 10 of them or something like that, but it's pretty incredible if you think about it. It's kind of a, we're kind of a niche topic when it comes to stem cell biology, but we're already one of the older science podcasts out there. And I feel like we're, we're pretty well established. It's really cool to see. So what is the the future hold for the stem cell podcast? What's, what's on the horizon? You know, I don't know the answer to that question. I think it's up to what people want. Um, you know, it's going well. Uh, you know, we get more and more people downloading and listening, commenting, following us on on Twitter all the time. Um, we're getting great guests. You know, I think people, scientists out there are eager to have this way to connect with people. So I would love to see us live more places. Um, I would love to see us do a little bit more in-person stuff. You know, you guys are always calling people, you're, you're, on opposite sides of the country. Um, so if we can get, you know, some, some events going on where we're recording, we've got an audience, um, that'd be great. I loved what we did at ISSCR this year, um, where we mm -hmm. were talking, you know, to people on the, the poster floor and we were, you know, pulling people aside and just asking them some quick questions and really engaging with everybody at all levels, um, of science. Uh, I would also, I know there's a lot of hunger out there to hear more about I hate to say alternative careers in science because they're just careers now mm -hmm. in science, but you know, the different types of ways, um, people with scientific training and expertise can contribute to science. Cause we obviously most of the interviews we do are with researchers and, and people who are leading their field, but researching more trainees, more science communicators or interviewing, sorry, more trainees and science communicators and, and, you know, you guys interviewed the the brewer, you know, a while back and like you've, you know, mm -hmm. I know you've interviewed a, a few people from from stem cell, but other people who are doing cool things in science. So I would say to the listeners out there, like we're totally open what you guys want to hear. Um, we're happy to explore that. So, you know, reach out to us on Twitter, um, you know, at info at stem cell podcast .com and, and suggest um, get feedback because we're we're happy to to feel that out. And, and, and expand as, as we have the opportunity to do that. So I guess we'll wrap things up then. Um, thanks so much for joining us here, Nicole. It's awesome to get to talk to somebody who's, you know, an expert in science communication and somebody who's just so instrumental in helping us do what we love to do, which is, you know, to talk to scientists and talk about science. So so we're going to ask you a peripheral question. So when it comes to science or non-science books, it doesn't have to be a science book if you don't want it to be, what's been a recent favorite of yours? So I read a lot. I actually, I wouldn't say I read a lot. I listen to a lot of audiobooks because I, uh, I'm a mom and, and busy, so I don't have a lot of time to actually sit, sit down with a physical book. But I do a lot of running and a lot of commuting, so I like to listen to books. And I recently listened to, and of course, everybody probably has, but Michelle Obama's book, Becoming. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's like an international bestseller, but um, I was astounded by that book. And just, you know, as a, a woman, a professional working woman who is also a mother, um, I was just really humbled by her story 
And, you know, and I was fascinated by the insights into, you know, you know, she became a lawyer and then decided that law wasn't, you know, the right career for her. And so there's a lot of parallels there to my my career story and how I kind of pivoted um, with, with my training. And then, you know, she becomes a working mother. And then she's got this, of course, um, very successful husband and how she navigates that. And then like the transition into the White House and the insights into you know, I'm Canadian. I'm not even, I don't even have the vested interest that you guys have into this, but fascinated by like what that's like to be really just an everyday normal person growing up on the South side of, in the South side of Chicago. And then suddenly she's like the most famous woman and has like a motor brigade and mm -hmm. secret service following her around and like people waiting on her hand and foot and, and how, what that meant. And then what it meant to be like the first African-American family in the white house. And so I was it was just such a genuinely truthful, humble, insightful book. Um, and I would recommend anyone read it, regardless of any political, you know, viewpoints or, you know, it's a powerful story for women and, and, and um, you know, people of ethnic minorities or whatever. But I, I think it's just a powerful story overall. I, I really, really love that book. I listened to it twice, which is saying a lot. Hmm. Well, Wow. Yeah, we need to get her uh, back in the White House, in my opinion. She, yeah, she, she makes it very her. clear in that book that that is not going to happen. That's oh. like the the disappointing piece is that she's like, everyone asks, and no, I don't have a political yeah, you know, wow. There's, career ahead of me. We're in a crisis. I'll ask again. <laughs> Michelle, please. We need you. Anyway, Nicole, thank you so much. Like Arun said, I mean, this is a real gift to get a different perspective. And, and we're grateful to you for a lot of things. Uh, I think today we're grateful for joining us and sharing oh, your thoughts. Well, I'm grateful for you guys because you guys are the scientific experts. Like I said, I could never, I could never sit in that chair. So I think it all works together really well. And I've really enjoyed coming and, uh, and I've, I love the honor of being in this, if you can call it a studio. I want to tell people there's a, there's a fridge beside me that has uh, beverages in it, but the fridge, the sticker on the fridge says tissue culture only. So <laughs> it's, <laughs> yes. And earlier, Daylon offered me a, a, a drink out of that fridge, so that's pretty fun. Well, um, <laughs> it's been decontaminated, okay, but okay, somehow H isn't listening. I, I just can't get the biohazard sticker off the thing. It's the last thing to go. But it's clean, cool, it's clean. Don't worry, you're going to survive this trip. Uh, thanks again. You know, mutual benefit, it's the lubricant that keeps society functional. And I think this is a situation where uh, we're all happy to be in it together. Uh, Arun, Nicole, thanks for this show. It's a good one. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Take care. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. And from the whole Stem Cell Podcast team, one of whom is in studio, we'd like to wish you a very happy holiday. We'll be back January 14th. <laughs>